It's also a, a day where we're launching into a, a series that we're calling Asking for a Friend. Now, this series is a series designed to tackle some of the difficult questions, the tough questions that people are asking. And you might ask me on the eve of all the change that's happening and moving into this new leadership position, if you so vote me in, why would you do a series like this now? Like, Why tackle a series that could be so divisive uh, as people are raising their different concerns and we're, we're hitting some of the open-handed stuff and the, the edges of some of the theological perspectives that go around. Why do that now? Why not spend all of your time just focusing on you know, the, the main thing? And it's a good question, but I think the reason we do it now is because anytime there's a transition in leadership, anytime there's change, what happens is, is all of those surface level things start to come to the fore as people begin to ask these questions, say, where are we going? What are we doing? So I felt it was super important for us as we enter this new season and transition into this new season of ministry officially, even though we have kind of been doing it for six months. But what, like, let's just, let's raise this stuff. It's the stuff you guys are asking. This is why we do it this way. Put it out there. You ask the questions. If you're not asking it, we won't answer it. But if there is a number of questions that are coming through, if there's an undercurrent or a tone that is, that is bubbling in the heart of this church, we wanna be able to address that. We wanna be able to speak into that because we know that unity comes through understanding, yeah? And unity commands a blessing. And as a church, we wanna be a church that is unified and you can have unity even without uniformity. We can have a church and we do have a church and this is something that's so unique and so special about this place is we can have a church where we can have people who see on polar ends of different biblical arguments and still come together in Christian unity, brothers and sisters. And some of the stuff we're gonna tackle over the next six weeks, you may not agree with me. Guess what? That's okay. The goal of what we're doing is not to go outside and then go, oh, I can't believe he thinks that. No, no. The goal of what we're doing is to get you to open this because this is our foundation. And we go to the Word and we talk about the Word. And my deep heart and prayer is coming out of this that some of you will be like, far out. I had never seen it that way before. And maybe you'll come out of it and go, I totally disagree with him. (laughs) But you know what? Come back with the word and say, this is why. Let's not allow our perspective to be shaped by opinion or culture, but by the word. That the word would drive us. And I'm going to do my best for all of these different conversations to bring us to the word because the word is the rock on which we stand, amen? So this is what we're gonna do, address a whole bunch of different topics that's come out of your questions with the heart to make us more like Christ. If we get to the end of this and we're more like Christ because we've sat in his word, we've talked about stuff, we've gone back and forth, we've debated, but debated with that heart of love, 1 Corinthians 13, do all things, outdo one another with love. If we can do that, we will walk as a unified church, even with different perspectives. That is the heart of this series, to bring that unity, to bring that clarity. People perish for lack of vision. We want to cast a clear vision of this is who we are as a church. This is where we're going. So let's run together after the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm excited about this series. I hope you're excited. And I hope that you brought a notepad and a pen because this is going to be a bit different to perhaps a normal David Shepherd sermon where you should bring a notepad and a pen for all my messages. But this is going to be, there'll be less of me running around and probably more of me standing and diving real deep. We're going, we're going deep in the Word. We're going to jump all through the Scripture and trust that the Lord will speak. So take notes, be engaged, be excited, God is good. So where are we beginning? We're going to kick off with a conversation around a topic 
that we had probably twice as many questions about than any other topic. Like with these questions, we had something like well over 50 questions come in asking for a friend. Um, the idea for that came when I was speaking on a panel at a young adult thing and this guy put his head and he goes, oh, just a friend of mine's just one. I'm not sure he is champion. <laughs> but what it does do is it provides that a bit of anonymity, doesn't it? It just gives us a space. Some people don't want to put their hand up in a crowd, but they're happy to say, hey, this is on my heart. And when something's on our heart and we see that across the church, it gives us a space to be able to address it. This topic had twice as many as any other topic. There are some one-offs, which we're not going to get to. They're interesting, maybe another time. But there's six kind of major themes that came through. And the first one is relating to women in ministry. And I want to read, I'll read a few of the questions and then we'll get stuck into it. Question one. The role of women leading is still quite controversial, controversial in churches today, even good evangelical churches. Scripture quite clearly states that women come under men's authority and shouldn't preach or lead churches. As a female, I think we do have God-given gifts to lead and preach. Is that going against Scripture? Is that Scripture just old-fashioned? Is it an old-fashioned part of the culture of the times? If I throw that out, how do I argue homosexuality is wrong? Is that a cultural thing as well? Asking for a friend. I grew up in a Lutheran church where women ordination isn't allowed. Can you please explain biblically how, why, where women can be pastors slash preachers? Two more. In the DNA series, you quite passionately spoke about first and foremost, we are a Christ-centered, biblically-based church. You said that God's word is inerrant and infallible. Why then, if the Bible clearly says in 1 Timothy 2 that women shouldn't preach, do you let them preach? Direct question. We can have a talk about the Baptist process later as well. In your sermon on sex, lies and lollipops, you talked about gender roles and how men and women are different according to God's good, God's good design. So I assumed you must be complementarian. But then we've had different women preach in church. So, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's with that? I'm confused. Where do you sit in the complementarian, egalitarian debate? Great questions. Great questions. Um, First and foremost, I'm not Jesus. I don't have all the answers, but I do have his word. And as I said before, so my job is to do the best I can with the word that he's given me. And I want to just acknowledge there's a reason it's a debate, because really good biblical scholars with great intention and heart to search the scriptures will land at different ends of the spectrum and that's okay but our heart this question is why do we at Hills Baptist allow women to preach and so as a part of that is what I'm going to try and answer today okay let's stand to our feet let's pray we'll read the text that is causing so much consternation and then we'll see what God has to say. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's truth. Lord, we thank you for a heart within this church to seek understanding and to desire uh, knowledge and wisdom. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring that today, that you would bring that sense of clarity, or if not complete clarity, at least a sense of direction. Uh, Thank you that your words are lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And we want to follow you. So help us to do that, Lord, with honesty, integrity, and hearts that are first and foremost for the gospel. That the name of Jesus might be glorified, that we would see lives transformed, and that the hope of the gospel would be revealed right across the world, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus and all God's children said, Amen. Okay, let's go to 1 Timothy. Let's read this passage. See what all the fuss is about, and then we'll dive into it. Now, often when we come to 1 Timothy 2, people start in verse 11. I think that's incredibly unhelpful because you are jumping in to the middle of a dialect and a middle of an argument that Paul is making. I think it's much more helpful to start at the very beginning of 1 Timothy and read the whole letter in its context. But for the sake of this preach, 
we will start at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul has ch- uh, charged Timothy, the young disciple, his uh, next-gen leader. He's charged him to keep running the race and fighting the good fight of faith. Verse 1. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Just remember what those kings and authorities were doing. Murdering his friends. And he says, I charge you to pray for them. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth. Wow. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. I love that Paul's already sidetracked by Jesus. It's so great. I pray that I get sidetracked a lot by Jesus as we talk about this stuff. Because he's just like, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We're going to see this over and over again. It's all about him. The conversation I'm about to have, it's all about him. It all points to him. That's Paul's point. Verse 8. Therefore... I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Here's where people get funny. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived, and she became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with all propriety. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? It's an interesting passage. But this is the beauty of the Word of God. When we look at it in context, we can actually begin to ask the question of what is Paul saying. And we have to, have to, have to, have to always let Scripture interpret Scripture. Far too many people take one or two verses and use that the lens through which all of theology is built. It should be the other way around. A verse needs to be looked through the lens of the entirety of Scripture in order to build theology. Yeah? So we need to make sure that we let Scripture be Scripture. Now, we're going to come back to that passage in a minute. First and foremost, let's deal with the complementarian and egalitarian thing. Here's what I want you to understand. Labels can be extremely unhelpful. If I said to you guys, we want to be praying for peace and prosperity, and we want to be promoting peace and prosperity within the churches, we want to pray for peace and prosperity within our nation, Pretty well everyone here will be like, that is a good thing. Let's do that. Let's charge after that. Do you know, that was a really good thing in Germany in the late 30s and early 40s. Because they had a symbol which stood for peace and prosperity. It is now known as the Nazi swastika, and it no longer stands for peace and prosperity. It has been distorted. It has been manipulated. It has been abused and misunderstood, and because of that, because of what they did to that symbol, it now stands for something it was never intended to stand for. And the same is true for so many labels. And as we come to the words complementarian and egalitarian, the exact same thing is true. The word complementarian was uh, coined in the 70s, and it was coined to help bring understanding around the Genesis 1 to creation ideal, around the created order of what does it look like for man and woman and how they operate. But what it has become, it has become a calling card for hierarchicalism. It's become a calling card um, for patriarchalism. Like it's become this calling card where people have used it as a means by which they can exert power and abuse and uh, 
authority. Like it's, it's become something that it was never supposed to be. It's, suppo- it's complementarian with an E. It's supposed to be this picture that we are complete together. Male and female complete this beautiful picture of, of being made in God's image. But it hasn't, the, the label has distorted how we look at it. Does that make sense? The same is true with egalitarianism. It also actually, interestingly, finds its roots in that Genesis 1-2 creation ideal, trying to paint a picture of what does it look like for man and woman created by God side by side, you know, part of God's beautiful image. It's like, let's use the word egalitarian, but it's been perverted and distorted. And now it's like, you know, it's about feminism and liberalism. And so often people look at egalitarian. If you say, I'm an egalitarian, they think, oh, you're an unbiblical, uneducated fool. And it's just not the case. However, the label has become that. So what I want to suggest to us is we get rid of the labels. Let's stop talking complementarian and egalitarian and let's start looking at Scripture and say, what does the Bible say about this? So with that said, let's go to Genesis 1 from verse 26 and let's look at the creation ideal, the created order. What does God have to say about how he made things? Verse 26, chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we're made in God's image. And he wants you to really get that because he repeats it. And then he says, male and female. Not male and male. Not female and female. He didn't just make male and then reproduce male so that he could have some asexual just reproduction thing going on. No, no. There's a picture of God's image, male, female, different, yet connected. The Hebrew word is ish for male and ish ah. Everyone say ish ah for female. So again, there's this picture that we're, you know, we're, we're in the same cloth. There's this, they're cut from this, this similar mold, with, but we're different, we're distinct. There's difference between male and female. And when we start to hear people say, no, there is no difference between male and female, that is not biblical. There is a difference. Look around. Just look. There are differences between men and women. Biologically speaking, there are differences. There is male and there is female. That is the created order. And it's God's good design. Because before, when it was just male, the only time God's creation is called not good. The moment female comes into the picture, he says it's very good. Very good. Male, female, different, connected. Female, created. Well, let's go there. Chapter two. Keep going. It's a a rehash of the same story. And from verse 20, part B, it says this, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And he said, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Ish-ah, for she was taken out of Ish. Woman, man, that is why, that is why the created ideal, the created order, that is why the image of God, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There is a difference. And a woman is created from a man's side, not from his foot. I love that idea that she's not created from a foot that to be trampled on, but likewise, she's not created from his head to rule order over him. She's made from a male side, side by side, symbiotic relationship, but different with specific purpose and specific roles. That is the created order that we see in the Bible. Now, watch this. 
John 1, who created, God created. But the New Testament authors want us to see this more clearly because John says, he begins, he goes, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the word was with God in the beginning. It says, all things were created through him and nothing that was made was made without him. It's trying to get you to see who's the person, who, who was there at the beginning of creation. The son, Jesus. Who put the created order into place? Jesus. Go to Colossians chapter one, another wonderful passage of scripture. It's all wonderful. From verse 15. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. All things, male and female, were created in Christ. To be a follower of Christ is to understand that He is the one who put male and female in order. He did it. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him, which means the created order of male and female and us working together is for His glory. It's not something he just did because he thought it was a good idea. No, it's about him. It's about Jesus. Everything comes back to Jesus. It's a unified story that points to Christ, all of it. It's all for his glory. I feel like singing that song. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head. Everyone say head. He is the head of the body. Who's the head? Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Why is Jesus the head of the church? So that he might have the supremacy. Why did Jesus create male and female? So that he might have the supremacy. Why has Jesus established the created order? So that he might have the supremacy. It is for his glory that we see this picture. And he says right here that he is the head of the church. Now watch this. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 11. Are you okay to jump around the Bible today, church? There was not enough people saying you. There we go. We're gonna jump around the Bible. Get ready. 1 Corinthians 11. Watch this. Paul trying to explain this picture of Christ-like headship. The created order, male and female, Jesus is head of the church. He's like, what's he done in the created order to reveal this headship of Christ? Verse one, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ. He puts that first before he says what he's about to say because Christ is the head. He goes, now there's a created order. The created order is, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So there is headship. There's this picture of headship in the created order. Go to Ephesians 5. This is where I spend a lot of time with couples that I'm marrying because it's a glorious passage of Scripture. Ephesians 5. Paul's going to pick up the same illustration. Verse 21. Now, a lot of people who try and abuse what headship is, don't like including verse 21 in their reading of this passage. We like to start at verse 22, but we need to start at verse 21 because 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he goes on and says, now submitting to one another, let me talk about the created order. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. He's saying there's this picture on earth. There is a picture in marriage, in male, female, where I've established this thing called headship. But it's not so that a man can have power and dominion and control over a woman. It is to point people to a greater heavenly eternal reality that Jesus is head over his church. And when you look at marriage, what you should, when you look at biblical marriage, when you look at marriage that is surrendered to the Spirit of God and open to Him moving in our lives, what we should see, people should see, they should go, man, that's a picture of Jesus in His church. 
And so when we talk headship, yes, there is headship. I believe in headship. I believe that God has established a created order. I believe that. I believe he's put that in the fabric of creation. But it is not about control, power, authority, manipulation, abuse. That is not biblical. It is supposed to reflect Christ and his church. Verse 32 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul says, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. He gave everything for her. He did not stand there and say, do, 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 now wash my feet. He got on his knees and he washed their feet. That's the picture of biblical headship. And I just have it on my heart today to speak to particularly every woman in this place who has ever had a male call out headship as an abuse of power and authority. And I wanna say, sorry. And I wanna repent on behalf of men in the church for all time, for that abuse of authority, because that is not biblical and it is not God's design. The design of headship is Christ-likeness. It is a weight of responsibility. I'll never forget my wedding day as I'm standing at the front of the church doing everything I can to hold it together. And I'll, the, you know, Joe's sisters come down the aisle one by one and move over there. And then I see Joe appear and then I'm already gone. And then her dad is walking her, my father-in-law, walking her down there, a big burly man, old Al, big burly man. Doesn't get emotional over anything. Everything's pretty crazy. And he's got tears streaming down his face. And that moment where you walk down, you know, all the guys I've married know this, I always say, you've got to walk down, you've got to greet the father-in-law. And he walked down and he, he, I shook his hand and he stared me in the eye and he just held my hand for a moment. And with tears in his eyes, he said, she's yours. Now she's yours. Here's what he wasn't saying. He wasn't saying, have an object to do with what you want. <laughs> Could you even imagine That's not what he was saying. What he was saying was, I have held a responsibility. As a father to my daughter, I've had a responsibility for the last 20 years to love, to protect, to honour, to cherish, and to raise up this beautiful daughter of God. And now that responsibility is yours. I'm giving her to you to put you will carry that weight of responsibility he's saying use it well love her as Christ loves the church you know the woman is the jewel of creation men you look at the created order the picture of creation it grows in beauty and complexity with each new day the final thing created Woman, is there a more glorious complex (laughs) being? Men, come on. Some of us guys were pretty simple. Full tummy and a good night's sleep and we're all right. Headship is never, you don't trample a jewel. You don't abuse a jewel, you don't, no, you lift up a jewel, you set it on a, what do they call that thing? You set it on a ring, you know, on the little thing that shines. That's the job of headship is to see the gifting and calling and anointing that God has put upon a woman and say, my job as head of this house is to see you become all that God has called you to be. And a day is coming where I'm going to walk my daughter down an aisle. (sighs) Why did I go there? (laughs) 
and I'm going to look her husband to be in the eye and I guarantee I'm going to have tears streaming down my face. (laughs) Not because I want to get rid of her because she's glorious, young Mabel. And I'm going to say to him, now she's yours. Not to abuse, not to misuse, but to be head of your house as Christ is head of the church. Love her, cherish her, equip her, champion her, release her to be what God has called her to be. That is biblical headship. The problem is that so many people are living in the Genesis 3 headship, not the Genesis 2. Because the Genesis 3 headship is where we see the curse. We see sin enter the world. We see the curse and we see when you read that curse, what you see is a desire for power, wealth and acknowledgement. The woman, it says that she will desire the things of her husband. She'll desire his position and you see that a man will work the ground and it's all about status. It's all about development. The curse has taken hold of the created ideal, the created order and perverted headship which is why we have these debates and people get so hotly contested about it. Because I promise you, if we understood true biblical headship, male, female, we understood God's design, no one is arguing about that. Not a single woman will be offended about submitting to a man who is dying to himself for her betterment. Now that is a joy to submit to that. And not a single man will be abusing his power or that headship authority by pushing his wife around and telling her to shut up and be quiet and not do things because you're dying to self. It's not about you, it's about him and pointing to him so that every person would look at that and we all get it wrong, guys. And ladies, we all, we're sinners saved by grace. So we have to constantly come back to this. We have to constantly repent. We've got to constantly say, God, move in my life and make me more like you, which is why we do things like this. We have these conversations that we would have that heart to die to self for the betterment of our beloved. That is biblical headship. And friends, that is a transcultural reality. What do I mean by transcultural? I mean, it transcends time, space and culture. From the beginning of time to the end of time, that is the created order of God. That there is male headship submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now with that said as a transcultural reality, now we have to look at these passages. Because what we do now is we come to 1 Timothy 2. And last service I started with Paul's practice. I'm going to finish with Paul's practice today. And we're going to go into these passages. Because when we read, let's go back to 1 Timothy 2 and read it again. Starting from verse 8. Because the the argument, the reason this argument exists that women shouldn't teach is because people read this And they say that it's transcultural, that it transcends time and space, that it's a command for all time, okay? And in reading that, that way, the justification for it is because the created order is mentioned. Let me me show you. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Firstly, this is the same passage, the same text. No one's saying that's a transcultural reality. How many blokes didn't raise their hands today? No one's going, oh, you have to raise your hands as soon as you come into church. Every guy walks through the doors and they're like this. An hour and a half later, you're like, oh. No one says that. But why do we assume? Anyway. Verse 9, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves with elaborate... uh, Uh, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Then he goes to the created order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, we can look at that and we can say, that's pretty straightforward. Women shouldn't teach. But there's another passage 
which uses the same created order by the same author which would suggest something different. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. We went there before. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding the traditions just as I pass on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Created order. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. And on and on it goes. And he goes into the created order. And then in verse 10, uh, for this for it is, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now, that's a passage that not many biblical scholars today would say is transcultural. Not many biblical scholars would say that women should have head coverings because most biblical scholars look at this passage and they recognise that Paul is using a a cultural symbol to speak of a transcultural reality. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the head covering. He is talking about headship. And what he's saying is, men, when you prophesy, do this. He's saying, women, when you prophesy, hang on, didn't you say that women aren't allowed to speak in 1 Timothy 2? But now you're just assuming that women will. Anyone? The word prophecy here, the word prophesy here is the exact same word used for teaching instruction. Later in 1 Corinthians, he uses this same word to talk about the greater gift of prophecy, which does what? Edifies the church. How do you edify the church if you're not speaking? You can't. So the church is edified through prophecy and it is assumed that women will do it. But he's saying, do it under the biblical pattern of headship. That's what he's saying. Women, preach, prophesy, teach, do what God has gifted you to do under the biblical mandate, the created order of headship. Why is he using this illustration of the physical? The reason he uses the physical is because this is Corinth. Bible readers, in Corinth, there is a Gnostic cult rising up that says male and female is no longer a thing. It is in Corinth, there's this teaching that it's just the spirit, that, that the created order has been removed. In Corinth, there's this picture that no, it doesn't matter anymore about gender. And what Paul's saying is, no, it's really important. And just to make sure that people understand this, Put in a physical sign so people know you're a woman or people know you're a man. Make a statement about femininity and masculinity and then operate in the gifts that I've given you. That's what he's saying here. Why? Because Paul's primary concern always in all of his letters is the primacy of the gospel, that the gospel would go out unhindered in any context, in any culture. Remember what he says. He goes, I have become all things. That by any means necessary, any means necessary, the gospel might go out unhindered. He says to Timothy, friends, Paul's entire message is freedom, Christian freedom. Do you know what he says to Timothy? He's like, mate, just get circumcised so it doesn't cause offence for the gospel. <laughs> He's saying, whatever you do, don't put anything in the way of the primacy of the gospel so women in Corinth chuck something on your head so, they, so that the created order of female and male is well known so that the gospel can go out with power and authority and bring about the transformation that only the gospel can bring. Which brings us to the 1 Timothy 2 passage. Because if 1 Timothy 2 says you can't speak as a woman, but 1 Corinthians 11 says it's assuming that they do, we have a problem. Now, either we take it as a transcultural text or we look at it in light of all Scripture and we say, well, it can't be transcultural. There must be something else going on here. Do you know what that means we need to do, brothers and sisters in Christ? 
That means we need to dig a little bit deeper. That means we need to dive in and look at 1 Timothy. We need to say, who's, where's Timothy pastoring? He's pastoring in Ephesus. What's happening in Ephesus? There's the cult of Artemis. What's the cult of Artemis? It's a pagan cult led entirely by women, which involves shrine prostitution and ordinate dressing. What is Paul's first command to Timothy about the women? Before he talks about preaching and being quiet, he says, don't dress like this. Why? Because of what's happening in Ephesus. It's about the primacy of the gospel. Be salt and light. Be salt and light. Which means, friends, in this context, this is what Paul's saying. Timothy, in your context right now, it is better that a woman does not speak. Remind her of the biblical posture of headship. Remind her that she can come under her husband's authority. Remind her of that. And it's better that she doesn't speak. Let the men speak in this context because the world that you're in, the city that you're in, it's so easy for the church to become, get off its rails with all this stuff that's happening in your context. So do it this way. That's how I read it. You're allowed to read it differently. And I have been on one heck of a journey with this. You know, I was, band, you can come up and we'll close in a minute. I was raised in the Uniting Church and I remember a pastor, when I first went into ministry, a pastor said to me, he goes, you need a, he goes, what's your position on women in ministry? And I said, I don't have one. He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't have one. Like, I haven't really thought about it. Women preach, women teach, women worship lead, women do all these things. I don't see a problem with it. He goes, have you read the Bible, David? It's like, yes, I have. (laughs) Now, what that resulted in was a big journey of me searching the Scriptures and going, I need to get a position on this and talking with dear friends. I have dear, dear friends, some of my closest friends in the whole wide world who equally love the Word of God have searched the Scriptures and they have arrived at a different place to me where they would acknowledge headship, but then they would say, no, no, I don't think a woman should preach. Guess what? We still love each other. Why? Because Christ is supreme over all things and we're coming under his headship and we're having the conversation, not writing each other off. Not saying you're wrong and because you're wrong, I hate you. Which is, like I say that in jest, but that's what churches are doing all over the world. You're not welcome if you don't think like me. That's not biblical. Of course you're welcome. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Let's go back and forth. Let's open the Word together and go, what's God saying? Again, I've never seen that before. I've never understood it that way before. But what about this? And they come back and go, yeah, I've never seen that. But what about this? Back and forth, back and forth. Allowing the Word of God to sharpen us as iron sharpens iron. Ultimately, the goal to make us more like Christ that we might just revere Him and love Him all the more. So we look at the the pattern. We look at the passages. Now, I just wanna close by looking at Paul's practice because we can say, you know, Paul said this and we can argue what he said, but sometimes the best salve is to look at his life. Yeah? Yeah? Sometimes look at someone's life because someone can say something, but if their life reflects something different, then you've got to go, well, what's he really saying? Like I think about, I said this to someone the other day, Tony Filkey, the principal here, let's say he sends out an email to the school saying, I do not permit anyone to eat peanut butter sandwiches. A thousand years from now, someone gets that hold of that letter and go, oh gee, back in, you know, 2020, no one was allowed to eat peanut butter sandwiches. But then Tony's own kids are eating peanut butter sandwiches. And so you have to dive in and realise, oh, there's nut allergies and you can't have them in schools. That's just a side thought and an analogy which I thought might be helpful. We have to be able to dive in. So let's look at Paul's life. Let's look at his practice. What do we see in the way that he did ministry? Here's what I see. As I read the scripture, again, you might see it differently, but this is what I see. I see 13 women in Paul's life. 
Lydia, Chloe, Nympha, Apphia, Mary, Persis, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Priscilla, Eudeus, Sycophany, Phoebe, and Junia. Chloe, Nympha, and Apphia. 1 Corinthians 1, Colossians 4, Philemon 2, expressed as house church leaders in the early church. Now again, it doesn't specifically say that they preached, but I think teaching is inferred when someone says they led a house church. Let's talk about it. You might disagree. House church leaders. Four other women, Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosis, and Persa. Romans 16, the word that he uses that they worked very hard. And you might say, well, do you know what? Liz worked really hard putting together the AGM documents. That doesn't mean she preached and taught. The word here, the Greek, work very hard, is the exact same phrase that he uses when he talks about his own apostolic ministry that I worked very hard. It's the exact same phrase he uses when he talks about Timothy and Titus. They were co-laborers in Christ. Again, what's the picture? To me, the language seems to suggest this picture not of them coming along quietly and packing the lunches. No, it seems to suggest a picture that they, under Paul's headship, were preaching and teaching the Word of God. Priscilla and Aquila in Romans 16. You know, he mentions Priscilla first, not Aquila. That's a very weird, strange thing to do in that culture. To put a woman first, he might be saying something. And interestingly, it says that Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos, who became one of the most powerful preachers of the early church. Who taught him? A woman and a man. And he's careful to say that it was both Priscilla and Aquila, not just Aquila. Philippians 4, Paul mentions Eudia and Sycne, also fellow workers. Phoebe, Romans 16, fellow workers, servant of the gospel. And then there's one for me, and this is something that has really shaped my understanding, is Junia in Romans 16, verse 7. Junia is a female name, and Paul says that she was outstanding among the apostles. What is an apostle? What did apostles do? They preached, they taught, they planted churches. Outstanding among the apostles. There's something about Paul's life that seems to suggest that maybe the first Timothy 2 comment isn't transcultural, but specific. That's where I've landed. I'm on a journey. I want to search the Scriptures. I want God to speak to me. I want God to reveal truth to me. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. I want to, it's all about Him. And it's okay to be on that journey. You don't have to believe what I believe in this regard. What you do have to do is seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and ask God to bring revelation. Why have I spent so much time on this? Because I think it's important. So what's the answer to the question? What was the question? Why do we have women preach? Why have we got female staff members? Because when I look at the pattern of the created order, when I look at the passages of Scripture, and when I look at the practice of Paul's ministry, to me... It seems as if Paul had many women working side by side in the proclamation of the gospel. And if the Spirit of God gives gifts to his people, good gifts, gifts of preaching and teaching, and they've been bestowed upon people, and it doesn't say bestowed upon men and not women. It's another whole other argument. That's where I've landed. That's where we as as a leadership have landed. And that's why we as a church have women stand up here and proclaim the Word of God under headship, which is under the headship of Christ. Amen? So here's what we're going to do as we close. The band's going to come up. They're going to sing a song. And we're going to take communion because 
of all the things we could discuss when we've addressed the start this series with a topic which had more questions than any other, there's a strong chance that there could be division. What better way to just bring that perspective back than to come to the table and to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us, to remind ourselves of the, the bread, the body that was broken for us, that we might know healing from the curse, healing from the brokenness of the created order and the blood that was poured out for us that we might be washed from our sins and set free and cleansed, that we can walk in purity, that we can look at our lives and say, man, I have failed in this over and over and over again. But thanks be to God for His grace and His mercy, which avails for me and tells me to get back up and keep trying to be the man or the woman that God has created me to be. So we're gonna take some time just to pause, take communion, gluten-free at the back. And if anyone here would like prayer, if there's anything that has sort of touched something on your heart and the Lord say, man, go and get prayer for that. Go and get refreshed in that. Please come. We'd love to pray with you. We love you. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for giving me the time to unpack this as properly as I could. Five years of study really in 45 minutes. So I appreciate your patience in this. And I pray that it has blessed you, encouraged you and helped answer some questions about where we're going as a church. Let's stand to our feet. Oh Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We honour you and we worship you. Lord, as we kick off asking for a friend, I pray that all of us would be formed and reformed by your word into your likeness, that we might live in beautiful Christian unity that doesn't demand uniformity, but is rooted in the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for redemption. We thank you for creation. And we thank you that you have not left us without witness, but we have been made in your image for your glory, that we might be known by you and know you. We love you, Lord. We commit this to you now in the precious name of Jesus and all God's children said, amen. Go take communion as we sing. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.